Hey there, welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we love the hell out of this world, even if it's really hot or raining or flooding, wherever you are right now, that's kind of doing all the things here in Northern Colorado. We hope that together we can find a little bit more joy, a little bit more courage to take those steps that allow us to contribute what we can to that great turning towards love that is at the heart of this life. Today, we have our kind of annual question box episode, maybe more than one episode, depending on how many we get to. Um, and this is an opportunity every year where we ask our community to submit questions, and they do, and then we try to answer them as best we can. And we did some of those uh, on Sunday, and you'll hear them later in the podcast. But I'm here with Reverend Gretchen to look at some of the questions. We're going to randomly select, I think, like, nine or 10 of them uh, to to answer in conversation right now. So how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Are you ready? Sunday was very fun. Still thinking about it. Yes. You know, I feel like. Um, Why do we write I sermons? Actually- we should just do that every Sunday, right? <laughs> that is, I thought that. And the other thought I had was, I feel like the first year we did that was, so we've been doing this together for I mean, I was gone for one of the times and you were gone for one of the times. So we've only done it in like five, six, five, six times. Yeah. I don't know. Somewhere. Anyway, like the first time it was like really, I don't know. I was nervous and kind of like had a lot of um, adrenaline about it. And I, I didn't lack adrenaline this time, but I definitely feel like it's sort of, I we've done it. So I've been wondering how do we raise the raise the, the stakes. stakes a little bit um i definitely think the way we did mad libs this this time was it that was a new thing and uh raised the stakes in different ways but otherwise i just was thinking okay that we need to figure out our kind of next level uh adrenaline for this because it is very fun and the spontaneity of it for us is very fun we should have a panel of congregants who judge our answers and oh. uh <laughs> Tell us if we need to or, keep talking or say something different. Like yeah, okay, I don't know. that's good. I like that. Maybe maybe podcast listeners can give us some suggestions. Yeah, of how that. to raise the stakes about it. All right, uh, let's dive into some of those questions. So I have a random number generator here, and we're going to start with question six. Six. Okay. Five. Six. Oh wow, we're 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 starting off strong. Um, okay. as in we're going right into the deep deep waters here. How does Unitarian Universalism deal with the pervasive cruelty and evil we see in the world? Mm. Deal is such an interesting uh, verb. I know. I was actually really appreciative of the verb in the question because it's not like make sense of, explain. It's justify. (laughs) So um, I appreciate the wording in that it gives us a real way, a really universalist way to answer it, which is to say that we don't deny it. We don't... um, we don't try to justify it. We don't try to say that it, um, that everything happens for a reason. We instead say that it's, that those are places that we are called to bring more love and healing to. And, and that we recognize that 
um, that that's, that's a key part of our faith that those are uh, places that need healing. The way you start the podcast of we where that we are called to love the hell out of this world and that wherever there is evil to recognize it as a call to our showing up and to bring, to be a part of the healing. I remember when I was uh, a chaplain intern in the hospital and I was with a bunch of Christians and the central struggle that I saw them going through as they encountered disease and um, the realities of how social economic status uh, dictates health outcomes um, was this question of fairness. And they kept coming back to this struggle of like, how does the God that they know is all loving and all knowing um, and all good, how does it show up in these sorts of spaces? How do they reconcile that? How do they deal with that reality? Um, and what I noticed within myself is that that wasn't the struggle that I had. Like, I didn't have a struggle with exactly as you were kind of saying. I don't have a struggle with like the why. Um, like, why did a, a God set up this universe if only we are to suffer? Right. Um, because like, that's not the that's not the start of my analysis. <laughs> that's not the start of my experience is making that assumption and then feeling the 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 suffering and the pain associated with that assumption trying to live live itself out um and on the other side of it i think many unitarian universalists you know deal with the reality of of suffering and evil in the world um through um a kind of a, a commitment to continuous uh, engagement and uh, a, like struggle mm -hmm. um, as if they could not live a life that um, is meaningful if they weren't always constantly fighting for justice and for, for love mm -hmm. in the way that negates being able to notice the beauty and the joy and the the ways that we can in moments glimpse something different in the fragments yeah. of, of life. Um, so I think there's like an interesting way in which like we can go the opposite way of holding on to that story that because we believe we are the hands and the hearts and the minds that are, that can do something about it, that we are so we are, you are so responsible that if you aren't doing anything, if you're taking care of yourself, if you're relaxing, if you're not, you know, completely given yourself over, then you're failing um, and that you're culpable because mm -hmm. no one else is culpable except right. you. Right. And so you're personally responsible. Yeah. And thus must encompass your life. Yeah. that And that uh, is a sure uh, path to burnout and um, or overwork or um hubris really yeah um uh, so yeah there's a caution in that for sure the other thing that i want to just challenge in this question or deal with in the question is the the uh, the wording of pervasive cruelty mm. uh, in that i think part of what and it's sort of it's the counterpoint to your um observation of you know how we can become obsessed with injustice 
is that I think our work, our Unitarian Universalist practice is to pay attention also to the goodness that is per- pervasive, if not um, equal, even maybe that there's more goodness than there is cruelty and cruelty. Our brains are naturally attuned towards and it to towards the things that are not good or not working. We're problem solving brains. Um, but that actually there's a lot of good. And for me that, um, sometimes when people ask me, how do I, you know, what keeps, keeps me going or gives me hope is I just, I'm so, my job puts me in touch with so much of human generosity and human goodness and human kindness that it's easier, easier for me to remember that there's a lot of pervasive compassion also. And I think that's part of the Unitarian Universalist answer and practice is that we got to pay attention to and be a part of a different story, a story of human goodness and human kindness. And that it isn't about fighting something. It's about living a different way and about living attuned to beauty and goodness and kindness and compassion and believing that we are a people of goodness and not a people of cruelty. Go to the next question. The All right. Is four. Four. All right. This is totally switching gears, All at right. least I think. Um, which is we seem to be an aging congregation. What's behind that? Is it a problem? Is there a solution? Well, let's let's investigate this idea of an aging congregation. Because firstly, Let's. if if we are any human community, we are inherently aging. There, There is no way to get out of that process of being a people that grow older. If we stick in community, we are going to get older. I think what they're trying to mm. get, right, is right. That, that the average or the majority of us is, uh, is older than it was. And... Um, at some point at some point and i'm firstly empirically i'm not sure that's the case um i'm not sure that in at least recent memory that we had a a larger proportion of our congregation that was significantly younger than we have right now what i notice in our congregation is the ways that people interact generally in some age siloed ways within the community that if you're a young parent, you tend to hang around with young parents. If you're an older uh, adult, you generally are socializing and in certain connections with older folks. And so the perception, even the service you attend to when we have two services, we have older folks generally at the first service and we have younger families, usually at the second service. And so it can really um, shift the perspective that you bring based on how you engage. And actually what I see in the summer when we have one service at least is people are looking around and being like, Oh, (laughs) we're older or younger than I thought we were. Um, Yeah. I would say that my perception, the, the other thing to note is that churches are generally older you know, that um, if you look at the mainline churches, um, generally people not only get involved later on in their lives, um, but make up the bulk of the the labor and uh, the the folks who 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 are part of it. And that's just and that's been the case for generations. Um, so it's not new to not have younger people in the church. 
I think, okay, so let's start with the, this question of, are we aging? And by and assume that we're, we're talking about like on average is our, our median age older than it was, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. Um, I think the answer is probably empirically. Yes, is my guess. And some of that is just generational shift in that there are more boomers than there are Gen Xers Xers and Gen Xers would be like theoretically right now, a large percentage of our community, but the weight of boomers is high. (laughs) So we have a lot of people in our 70s, in their 70s. Um, That's probably more people in their 70s than we've ever had. And some of that is like, like uh, the way people live today are they're healthier in their seventies than they've ever been. They're more active in their seventies than they've ever been. So I, I think that is probably empirically true. Um, The question is, are we a effectively multi-generational community Um, as in, are we continually increasing and growing some young, some of those younger ages to, if we can't replace the boomers, at least, you know, keep up some degree of representation. And I think that the other way I would affirm is that I think through the pandemic, the hardest hit folks of people who stopped coming and then have a harder time reestablishing patterns have been people with kids at home in that mostly people in their thirties and forties. And I think it has, they have been the slowest to return if they're going to return at all. And so instead we're seeing a lot of newcomers in their thirties, not necessarily returners. So in that way we are sort of aging in terms of our leadership. I have probably the last two years have had the oldest board uh, board of trustees in the church that I've had since I started serving. And that is mostly representative of our feeding of like newcomers coming in over through the pandemic hasn't been as steady. And so therefore we don't have as many younger folks coming into leadership. So I think that's true. The question I want to, I have two answers to the, is that a bad thing? And what do we do about it? First of all, I think, um, I, I, I think it is not inherently bad. I think it's something to watch, um, particularly because I think it is missional to be accessible to all generations and to think about what our mission is to each of the generations and each of the life stages. And so it's a danger to um, be serving a church that is especially attuned to people in their 70s. That's not necessarily missional. It's potentially more social. And um, so we just need to be attuned to that and to think about how we are turning our folks who are of one generation to be of service and to be transformational, to be in relationship with those who are not in that generation, to be of a mission for younger generations. So that's for a sec on that point. Yes, please. Because I think one of the one I think one of the inherent challenges um, that comes with how do you serve across generations is that when we look at younger generations younger generations are um, significantly queerer yeah have sign uh, are, are more more disabled or uh open about disabilities and neurodiversities um yep. and don't have a history of practicing church in the same ways and are more racially diverse yes. and more accustomed to diversity yes 
and I have a, a you know a different orientation to things like climate justice or racial justice in that a, a deep um, um, that it's deeply integrated into who they are. A hundred percent. And so part of the reality of like bridging those generations is um, how do you who do you center? Yeah. In sorts of converse, uh, in conversations, how who do you assume is the average person that you're speaking to? And um, I think we definitely get sometimes pushback when we decenter that 70-year-old demographic. You know, I, how many times have we talked about whether or not we can make a Beyonce reference in a sermon and like <laughs> who will get it, right? And that's just like a small example of like that question of, and then if you make a reference of like the Beatles, I'm pretty sure <laughs> those folks will get it. Um, right. And so, but that... it does mean that we're signaling that who we assume the congregation is, is somebody who'll get a Beatles reference and not a Beyonce reference. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the problem, not the question of aging. And I think the the missional question of how are we serving our mission, not necessarily I mean, I, I, I think it's great to have a church filled with 70 year olds. If we understand that our mission is not to be for 70 year olds. Yeah. All right. Next question. Question number seven. Okay. Um, <laughs> God, we're really flip-flopping um, in it. terms of existential and practical here. Sean, what is our purpose here on earth? That's the mm. question. <laughs> what is our purpose on earth here? I, 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 there's like two impulses within me when I get questions like this. And the first yeah. is kind of this bratty answer in which the, um, like th th there's like an ultimacy that that question is yearning for, that there is a purpose that needs to be discovered and needs to be understood. And, you know, that, that, that it is so important to do. And so the, the bratty part of me wants to be like, there is no purpose. And, and that isn't just like a nihilistic answer, but it's like, the purpose is found and discovered and created contextually, relationally, again, in every moment and every age. And that therefore to say there is a purpose is, is only makes sense in the context of a particular set of relationships yeah. and humans. And that that is okay. That is okay for the purpose of life to shift and change over the course of lifetimes, the course of ages, and that there isn't something inherent. I mean, I'm thinking about like all of this speculation right now, but like alien life that we're seeing and testifying. Like when we, if we, whatever you believe about it, you know, discover alien uh, extraterrestrial life and civilizations, like that is going to profoundly shift the nature of the conversations about purpose. Um, yeah. and, 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 and religious ideas about like the centrality of earth in a cosmos of, of alien civilizations is going to really shift and alter fundamental religious beliefs around the world. 
And so like to say that the purpose would sustain itself, um, you know, from a medieval peasant to, you know, proto Starfleet, <laughs> I think is just not, not, not accurate to the experience of being human. That being said, there's another part of me that kind of at a more basic level wants to invite us to say that the purpose of life um, is something very, very simple, very organic, which is to um, to try to live in a way that allows more goodness, more love to follow from from the from the trail of your um, your mm -hmm. life. So those are my two impulses. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I would say, I don't think that your first answer is no purpose. Your first answer is contextual. Purpose. Constructed too. Right. It's okay, it's so okay for it to be constructed. Yeah. Right. Obviously. Uh, I mean, no matter what it's going to be, I mean, nobody hands us a manual, so I think it's going to be constructed regardless. Yeah, Even but how, how you how you construct, if it's constructed, if that makes sense, really does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Um, yeah, I, I one of my son asked me this question, which he does occasionally. Um, I tend to go with the second answer in that um i tend to say that we're here to create more more love but i i also add in the component of just life generally that we're here to be agents of life and for me that kind of threads together all the different uh, ways I understand spirituality and religion and a sense of purpose in that it um, takes into account uh, our interdependence and our place as just a part of the web uh, that we could be, that it isn't, that love is sort of an, a subjective concept, but that we could be for more life overall and that we could be agents of bringing more, more life to more more parts of the web is kind of how I've come to think about it. I wonder if our um, existential practical switches will continue with the next well, question. Let's see. Uh, what do you the got? Next question is question one. I don't know. This one kind of uh, it kind of merges the the two. I think. Um, what animal? do you find the strongest connection to God with? Uh, oh yeah, sure. I can <laughs> answer to that. Great. I love that you have an answer ready to go. What's your answer? Seals. Oh, of course seals. What, what other, what other animal would it be? Right? Tell me why. <laughs> so I, I, I like, I could give you two, two different uh, reasons why, but I mean, the biggest one for me is when, um, when I was young, when I was like in second or third grade, um, my grandfather died and we went out to uh, do the funeral and the memorial service. And I, uh, for some reason, was chosen to kayak out with my uncle 
into the bay by mm. my grandmother and my grandfather's house to drop his ashes into the ocean. And I like remember it so clearly going out there. I had this like little vessel um, and I like pulled out the cork and I still have the cork with me. Um, and I dropped it and I remember it falling in this clear water and this kind of spiral of ashes coming out. And then uh, I looked up and there was a seal that had popped up and it was kind of playing around. And so as a small child, I always kind of associated kind of like the spirit of my grandfather with this seal. Um, and whenever I'd go to the ocean, I usually would see a seal, which kind of reaffirmed that sense of connection. Um, and, you know, as I've grown older, like the kind of childish association, like I kind of understand how I was creating meaning and constructing meaning in the sense of like mourning and wanting to maintain connection and all that as a child. Um, mm -hmm. But the seal then became a symbol of um, that I would look for actively as kind of a, a, a token, I guess, of connecting into memory. Um, and I also just love seals because they are like playful and fun and ferocious. And uh, I always felt more akin to seals because they are very graceful in the water and less so on land, which I've always felt is true about myself. Mm -hmm. Um and so for me, seals have always been this like fun symbol of of divinity and presence across time. Um, and also this like loving, ferocious, playful being, which I think is pretty divine. There you go. Yeah. What about you? I love that answer. Um kind of have I have uh, one that is connected and one that is goes in the opposite direction. So the, the first thing that came to mind for me was um, the one that's connected. That's why when you said seal, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Which is the, I think of a whale. And um, not it's just Star Trek. they're yeah. organizing against us. Um, um, but I think, so first of all, going back, I, I said sometimes my son and I get in philosophical conversations about the purpose of life, but we also, another thing that connects here is that he is very terrified of whales. It's his worst nightmare. Like he has some sort of weird phobia about them. And I think that is always, it's always a mystery to me what he acknowledges he's afraid of. And so I've done a lot of kind of because of that investigation with him about like, what is it? And that's this like they are I, there's so much about them that we don't understand. And yet they're right in proximity to us. They're so gigantic, like they're giant in a way I can't conceive of. Um, I do think the water is analogous, analogous to the way that ancients conceived of the heavens um, for me, and that I think there's just so much about the oceans we don't understand. Um, I, I've been to so many like IMAX movies and read so many books about whales that I just do not. I like they're the the sounds they make, the, their migration patterns. It's such an incredible mystery, and it operates on a level that I think we really. It's like they're again they're right here, but we don't understand them. So that's my first answer. Um, and then my second answer is actually, I, I don't have a specific one, but I was thinking of birds. 
it's just because of um, the way that they can move together and that there is some kind of deep communication pattern of um, particularly the mermaid murmuration patterns of like, I just think in terms of God, because I don't conceive of God as a being per se, that, that silent process of uh, dynamic decision-making and journey. And it's also beautiful and um, yeah, co-creative. That's yeah. That makes me feel like whenever I see that and I'm on a box, it's always feels really connected. So it's, it's always, and it's also like possible, like, you you think oh how are they doing that and you realize there are really simple rules that they're following to allow them to move in those ways yeah yeah i mean i think some of those um those like natural patterns of the universe are to me it's so beautiful how it it seems mysterious yet there's actually a logic to it yeah all right next question uh eight I'm sorry. Okay. Um, can you share a time in your life when you had a surrender experience? I assume they, well, I don't know. Should I assume they mean that kind of holy surrender, the Jesus take the wheel kind of moment or a, I like, uh, I surrender as an, I give up. And maybe those are connected, but there's like a little bit of a difference between like uh, a surrendering to the universe versus like giving up on something that you were really working on or really wanting and hoping. There's there's some daylight in between them, even if they are uh, overlapping at times. I mean, it's basically the same. It's just one you feel relief by and one you feel pissed about. Yeah. I mean, like maybe. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Does something come to mind? I mean... Uh, I mean, I definitely feel like parenting has been the most surrender experience. <laughs> um, and it's like, um, like, I feel like it. So my kids are 15 and 17 now. And they're um, like, I feel like it's such a, it's such a given about how I, I parent that I, it, it's hard for me to remember a different way. Um, but I know, you know, like early on, the experience of parenting was, you know, recognizing over and over how little control I have and how much pain and suffering I was causing in myself and in my life by trying to maintain any kind of illusion of control. Um, so that's just a generally that's, it's not a one experience, but it is a lesson. I, I feel like I take over and over of then, you know, realizing, I have to let the flow of their lives and their development um, unfold. And sometimes that is, I come up against that in a more violent way. <laughs> sometimes I come up against it with much more um, equanimity, but it's definitely a lesson in surrender. I was definitely thinking about parenting um, in those moments. I often, in this real surrender moments, 
um, I'm surrendering to the decision I've already made, but I'm resisting making it. The consequences of it? Or... Yeah, the consequences of it, the fear of making that decision, the the life that you're giving up if you make that decision, the, all of it. Um, and yet, in the, in the real moments of surrender that I've experienced, it's always been giving in to what I know <laughs> is going to be the decision that I can't not make, but yet mm -hmm. all of me doesn't want to make. Um, mm -hmm. I, I also think that there's been moments in my life where I've had to give up stories about how the world works, stories about what I'm capable of, stories about like my own ego, in that there are these moments when you realize the the mental models uh, th that I have to to make sense of the world sometimes as defense mechanisms for the world are no longer adequate mm -hmm. to the reality that I'm trying to take in that I'm because like, you know, one of my core faith commitments is trying to be true to what is real. And, um, like to, to accept this reality and not be functioning in a different reality. And yet there are many times in which my own desire for, progress to be linear um, for myself to be useful, <laughs> get in the way of what is real, what is true. Mm -hmm. And so I've had to like surrender those things, those ideas about the world and about myself. And those are often more um, painful surrenders um, because they often leave me with an absence of a, a way of relating to the world in which I have to do painful construction work to integrate what I believed and what I'm experiencing. And yet, yeah, there's I'm, like I'm the a, better for it, but ugh, I don't like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's an like inevitable grief kind of process, actually. A surrender that includes a degree of grief. 100%. Yeah. We could say more on that, but we should probably keep going. Number three. We could do a on that. Oh. Number three. One, two, three. Good God, these are none of them are easy. I mean, the animal one was it wasn't easy, but it was a little more friendly. Here's let's try one. Um, how do we get America to move away from the us versus them mentality and come back together as humans? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I do know is that there was never a time in which when we were together. Well, there was a time when we understood us and them as free people and enslaved people. And then there was a time of us and them of, and maybe, and uh, indigenous people like that. Those were, there was clear us and them. Yeah. And so there has always been an us and a them in the way we have thought about, about the, in the deep in the identity of the, America. 
so yeah. It, so there was a period of time in, uh, so I grew up in Canada. So that's the context to which I um, still relate a lot of history through. Um, and there was a period of time in uh, the colonization of the United uh, of Canada in which um, the relationships between indigenous folks and settlers was actually um, handled on a nation to nation kind of basis and relationship. Um, and it was primarily because the the settlers and the traders that were coming over um, depended upon the indigenous nations um, for their own survival. And there's a whole, there's a great uh, Royal Commission report that um, was done in Canada about truth and reconciliation. And one of the major findings was that like, there is at least a little kernel of this way of relating to one another that, that respects the dignity of each other's nationhood um, that we might be able to return to. Um, but it was short-lived um, and doesn't negate the overarching violence and genocide that occurred uh, afterwards. So I, I, I don't, I think that there are the micro practices that we can take. Um, how are we as individuals trying to break down the divisions of how we see ourselves, the divisions between the different parts of ourselves. How are we doing that work with one another? How can we truly um, experience one another and not trying to control or judge and just welcome and accept them as, as a stranger? Um, I think those are some base practices that we can take up, but I don't know if we can really do this without... Um, without a real structural investment in writing the, the wrongs of the past. Like, I don't think we can truly break down an us and them uh, dichotomy or division without, you know, reparations for slavery. Because structurally our society is based in that injustice. And so it's always going to define us until we start to recognize it and remediate it. Yeah, I, I agree with you um, on a, from a whole culture perspective, America being either the U.S. or even just North America or the Americas. I mean, I think all of that is there's just deep cultural, uh, the impact of colonialism and uh, human enslavement, that it's pretty, that's a deep cultural narrative. Um, so I, when I get to the moment of feeling overwhelmed and like, it's impossible, then I usually try to reframe and think about, I like that you went to the individual person and divisions within yourself, but I also think within our own communities and our own practices, um, and to get smaller in the circle and to think about just within your own, like most, whatever scale you can get your head around. So whether that's your neighborhood Maybe it's your house, your home, your neighborhood, your city, your county, your state. And to think about what practices um, facilitate overcoming um, 
the a sense of othering and understanding that as you say deeply embedded in the question is uh power and uh injustice um with that said i think embedded in the question is also a question about democracy and the functions of our democracy in that i think they're pointing to a an acknowledgement of a deeper breakdown of the governmental processes um and the are what seems to be um, a new level of inability to function democratically. Um, and I think, and that I think that in that way, I think while, I don't know, let me try this out. So I think that we need to humanize in how we see one another but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't identify who is working for democracy and who is working against it and to actively oppose those who are working against it. And so that doesn't really, it like, it actually problematizes the us, them concept because I do think it's okay and necessary when you're in a time of the rise of um, fascist forces, which I think we are, to identify who is working in a pro-fascist way and who is working against fascism. And so that's, it's a different way, for, I think is embedded in the question that I just, I know we're going to come back to in November, I think when we do a series connected to some of this, but I just, I think sometimes this us them concept can get can fail to it can end up becoming a liberal like fetish um yeah and i think that there's a it's a different like i think we can say that there are people who are actively working to diminish other people's human rights and humanity and those it's it's acceptable to name them and to work against them and that 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 actually deciding not to is to collude with injustice. And we might have more to say that in the upcoming series on we might the paradoxes of tolerance. Oh yeah, we're going to talk about the that paradoxes of tolerance. The first, well, in two Sundays in the middle of September, we're going to take a little mini series moment. So I think yes, definitely we'll be talking some more about that then. All right. All right. Where are we at? Uh, question nine. Okay. Hold on. I can't quite see this whole question. So here we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, I never liked being told only people who say they believe in God and accept him or her can go to heaven. I don't believe in heaven, but I don't like being told I can't go unless I say the magic words. Does anyone else feel this way? Okay, say that again. Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> but that's not what she's actually asking us. Okay, um, I never liked being told only people who say they believe in God and accept him or her can go to heaven. I don't even believe in heaven, but I don't like being told I can't go unless I say the magic words. 
Does anyone else feel this way? Do you feel that way? Um, no, <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> um, because I don't care what people say if I'm going to go to heaven or hell. So that doesn't, it doesn't disturb me exactly. Um, and I honestly, that the truth is I, I respect people having different ways of thinking about the afterlife. And so if it turns out that the way they think about the afterlife is that they think that you need to us, you need to affirm a belief in God. If it is working for them and brings them life and goodness and brings them to be compassionate and caring in their life, then it doesn't bother me. Actually. Um, I have a different understanding of the afterlife than that, but it doesn't, it doesn't, the only way that it would impact me is if it leads them to want to coerce me through one way or another to agree with them. I don't know. Do you, do you, do you, does it bother you that people might have that sense? I mean, maybe we can just investigate why that would why what what is that about that it bothers that there's a a sense that being told that you can't go to heaven because you don't believe in god so bothers you even though you don't even believe in heaven so the the i think i i have two impulses the first impulse is i don't really care um but the second impulse is that i find it hard to believe that a theology that has an exclusionary heaven produces um, a way of relating and being with one another that embodies the deepest good in the world. And so I think like, there are ways in which the, the idea of a heaven that is necessitated on, you know, you saying a few words in a, you know, in the Christian evangelical context, like accepting Jesus Christ as your personal savior or like being baptized or whatnot, that like, that, that, doesn't produce a perspective on the world that, you know, um, that, that filters out into the relationships that you have, that you're like relating to folks who are unbaptized and unchristian. You're constantly thinking, oh, they're going to hell. And, you know, even that's even from a perspective of like, oh, I need to save them. Um, and I think there is a way of like, if you believe that it can lead you very easily into um, not being able to truly be in relationship with people who are different from you in a, in a full way. Um, and it can lead you to ideas about worthiness in this life that get played out um, societally. So I think yeah. that's the part that, that does get to me. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are Christian, you know, in the Christian context, there are many mainline and progressive Christians who would say that you, you can't act like, I think I saw a TikTok about this. This uh, minister was saying, what's wrong with having a belief uh, in heaven and hell that is exclusionary? Like, wh what is the problem if I believe that internally, um, but don't act like don't act on it? And his answer was like, there's no way not to act on it. Um, so that that's the part that, that bothers me. Like the two... 
Really what it is, is a, it's like asking, can there be a cognitive dissonance? Can you hold a cognitive dissonance about somebody's worthiness in this life and their, and God's ultimate judgment of them being unworthy? Yeah. And that what you're saying is that, that, you know, unlikely, but humans are really good at holding cognitive yeah. dissonance. I think like, that's the part that bothers me. I also agree that actually I think the majority of people that have exclusionary beliefs about the afterlife are able to maintain a cognitive dissonance because, as you say, we're really good at it. Um, we do it all the time. We're very think, irrational. But I think I would rather people <laughs> interrogate that cognitive difference uh, or that dissonance because I think it would lead them to a deeper, deeper place. Universalism, basically. Uh, yep. Um. um and that's right. I mean, they be- supremacy. <laughs> right. They became fundamentalists and and actively and fascists, yep. or they the universalists. universalists. Right. You're either with us or against us. <laughs> All right. Question five. All right. I think my number system is broken down, but I'm going to go with. Oh, this is the one that um, preceded the other one we uh, we answered, which so it should have come first. Okay. That's okay. What does it mean to surrender so that love can flow through you? What does it mean? I mean, mostly I think of this as the experience of um, trying to put your ego in check and to try to... Um, to yeah deal with your own ego and um get it to calm down <laughs> you know manage your ego in it so that it is a, a healthy expression um because it's that it's to recognize that you're not the center of the universe and that there's that you are a part of something greater and then beyond that i think it's about a deep listening, both practical, actual listening to other people, to um, what's happening around you, the reality, you said accepting reality, living out of reality, and then also deep listening in yourself and to something, to a greater wisdom that lives within you. This is in- inherent to what you say, but to name it very directly there's a necessity of giving up control Mm -hmm. and embracing a degree of risk and unknowingness. Um, Because you feel that, that call. And so um, it's for me, the moments in which I've really felt that like love was flowing through me there have been like micro moments like often when i'm praying with people there's this i can sometimes try to like in my head think about like oh what's the right prayer what do i need to say what do i know uh, and sometimes those prayers are all right sometimes they're good but often the deepest and the most beautiful prayers are the ones where i try to empty myself and just trust <laughs> that a good that the right prayer will come out. And there's like an intuitive, like an intuitive sense to that. Um, you, you know, what I realized is that 
I think that there's that the the inherent to the experience is a deep vulnerability. Yeah. And being in tune with your utter vulnerability in life and being like to be open to love flowing through you is to say yes to that vulnerability. Yeah. Okay. I All think right. we have one. We should do one more. All right. One more question. Great. Um, Give us a light, easy one to end with. It is not. We're not ending light. Wouldn't the most direct means of understanding the will of God be to study the natural world? (laughs) So (laughs) I feel like I, I was a debater for most of my like middle school, high school life. And the first thing you ever do in a debate is define your terms. And I feel like if for each of these questions, I'm like, let's define our terms. What is the quote unquote natural will. world? And or what the is this, will of God. the will of God? What is studying? <laughs> yeah. The natural world. I did think, I, I do think that's a, I think, yes. What they mean is something other than human created so, system structures, right? Yeah. And to which I I had a colleague who is a Puerto Rican uh, woman. And I remember her talking about how she struggles. She struggled often being in Unitarian Universalism because the way that people access the divine is so often connected to nature and being out of city spaces in which the ways that she has connected most with the divine is in urban spaces in uh, like the neighborhood in New York city that she grew up in, in the, the ways that people related to each other, the community connections, the, the, the dance, the move, the pulse, the feel of those urban spaces. Um, And that there's like this, yeah, this, this dissonance, this disconnect with the majority of you use. So say I commune with God in the mountains on the trail. Hmm. Um, and, and I would say, like, personally, that is definitely true. Like, I, I like being in the natural world. I, I love observing the natural world. And the most profound experiences of understanding God in, in that intuitive sense for me is have been found in uh, relational urban <laughs> environments. Um, and so from, like, a personal ecstatic experience i i can't say that is where i would find god okay so i think i want to look at the will of god part of this statement because it's not just god finding god but the will of god in that i think uh there's an underlying sense of like humans are not the will of God or that things that we do are not deeply connected to the will of God. And I, first of all, would go back to, um, I think I'd probably go to the process theology way of thinking about God and God's will and say that we are all in an ongoing act of co-creation 
so that wherever you can find co-creation that is in the, an active intention of seeking more love and more good, there you can find the will of God. Um, because I think that it's dangerous to imagine that somehow the pristine, quote unquote, pristine nature is closer to God and God's will than humanity and humanity's way of uh, co-creating. So I, I think probably we, I, we both reject this idea. Um, even though I understand the impulse of trying to like get down to, you know, what is the, how to make things right in the world in a way and how to, how to, how to bring a greater sense of goodness overall is that maybe we could go and find something outside of, um, what, where we've landed here. I understand that impulse. I just, I, I think it's, first of all, it's, um, it's kind of too late. <laughs> I mean, we're, there's a lot of co-creation across the whole planet and to imagine that somehow there's something there that is, um, in, not interdependent with us is, um, we're already here, but I also think, um, it take it imagines humans as necessarily outside the will of God. And I just don't agree. All of that being said, I think you could make an interesting argument for the potential that, um, that like understanding the mechanics and the laws of the universe from like a, a physical, like a physicist's perspective from a, ecological perspective point us towards ideas about the divine in ways mm. that are instructive towards how to be living and that like the homeostatic process of ecosystems shows us a blueprint for how we can live in the world and that the nature of quantum mechanics points to something about the realities of uh, chaos and creation and and all of this. So I think that there is yeah. something in that, like discerning something true about the universe in, in these spaces. Um, I think it's the, the, the desire to say any one of these spaces or planes of investigate investigation of experience is the definitive that I think is also challenging. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's why we need each of us in different ways. We need people who find God in the city and the, the 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 on the sidewalk. We need people who find God in nature, um, and in the you know on mountain trails. We need people who find God in uh, like clubs and in dancing and in music, because they're all astrophysics. They're all pointing us towards parts of the truth, parts of the realities of the ultimate which is what God in these conversations is. All right. We did pretty good. We did pretty that good. Was a covered number of them. Yeah. So it's going to be a long episode, but I'm going to throw in some other questions that we answered uh, IRL on Sunday. So we'll do a, we'll do a softball question to start out with. 
Help me with a, with a go-to question to open a conversation with somebody with radically different beliefs. Mm. I mean, I probably would say, I, I think my favorite is just to tell me, tell me where you grew up. I mean, like I would go to origin stories and just hear about, because I grew up in a small town I, and in Catholicism, there's a lot there of connection and I'm looking for places of empathy, compassion, connection in that way. So I'd probably talk about that. There's this FBI interrogation technique. <laughs> um, Different that, approaches. <laughs> that uses uh, this acronym called CheapVic to ask questions that get people talking, because that's the point, I think, when you're encountering someone, is how can you get, have a conversation in which you can keep going? And so it stands for, and I probably won't get all of them, concerns, hopes, expectations, appreciations, priorities, interests, and consequences. That's so good. And so picking one of those things to say, you know, what do you hope will happen about whatever you're talking about? Or what's your priority? What do you value in this circumstance? And just try to figure out those open-ended questions that'll allow the conversation to keep going. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is just to not close off. So whatever is the question that's going to help you not move into defensive argumentative posture, ask that. So this sort of leads right in. Uh, while everyone is deserving of love, there are some people I struggle to love. Love comes from a soft place. How can I find it for these people? It's like a different variation on the question we usually get. You know, how does, if in Unitarian Universalism, we generally affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person, and we all can think of people in our lives and in history and in our larger society in which we really struggle to see that inherent worth and dignity come through. And so how do you find that love is the question. I, I think, first of all, I believe that everyone is worthy of love. That doesn't mean that the love has to always... I'm not personally responsible for loving everyone. And that, I mean, it's a very important distinction because what it means is I need to act as if everyone is worthy of love. But that does not mean I have to personally, I am not, I, I literally am not responsible for that love. The love is something universal that I get to receive and I get to be an agent of, but I don't have to personally figure it out myself. And that's just the as if is the faith statement. I think the thing I would add to that is part of the question that we wrestle with as a society is how do we structure society so that we can allow people that are very different, people who have caused harm, people who have different perspectives to still experience a society in which they belong, right? And part of the questions isn't just like personally, how do you love as individually, but how do you embody, how do you vote, how do you invest in building a world in which people, no matter what they've done, can still find places of love and belonging. And so if we're foreclosing on a whole group of people from being outside the circle of belonging, of love, um, from a structural component, you know, we're locking them away forever. We're, you know, people in solitary confinement, for example, like that is torture. You know, that is foreclosing the idea that they would ever belong because you can't belong if you're stuck in solitary confinement, right? And so these sorts of structural questions kind of ask us to think about how we put those values into action. 
Mm, excellent. Here's a challenge. Uh, they, they ask some challenging questions, believe it or not. Yes. All right, so how do you put the baggage from an abandoned faith to best use? How do you put the baggage of abandoned faith to best use? I think like that's a good question for you. <laughs> well, I, did, I didn't grow up with faith baggage, right? So I came into religion, religion without it. And so I don't, it didn't, I don't have a carousel, a cart. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you have to do your work in that a lot of, like, we may not even realize it or want to realize it, but a lot of times that past faith, we may have thought we walked away from it, but it still lives in us and can live in us as reaction and um, rejection and defensiveness and attempts to, I mean, like in your sermon a few weeks ago, that clenched fist. And so working to heal and tend to and acknowledge the pain of that that still lives in you, I think is your very first. That's first. And then second is to try to, try to once you got through that, then you can sift through to find the gifts. And I think the gifts are, and I have yet to find a way of being religious that doesn't have some gifts in it. And so remembering that there were, there those gifts were, um, also there, and then how to draw on those, and that those are in you too. I don't know, that's, that's a very, I have a much longer answer than that, <laughs> but that's a beginning. Okay. UU is very intellectual and academic. How can, how can we as a congregation reach people who are less educated? I think that there's, in that question, an assumption that um, a faith that is based in reason and involves the intellect inherently involves um, like what you would consider academic in kind of a, uh, a structural sense. Whereas I actually think that our faith has been leaning in for the last 10, 15 years to a faith that is not, you're not coming to church and hearing an academic lecture right? You're not coming here to take a bunch of notes about all of the ideas of some esoteric philosophy. Only like every third Sunday. Yeah, every third service, <laughs> let's say. Um, be, because, yeah, we just... Exactly. Because actually at the core of our faith, it's actually a very, I don't know, down-to-earth, plain faith, right? We believe that what we do with one another matters more than what we believe, we believe that together we can do things we can't do apart. We believe that we are all bound up together no matter what happens in this life or what happens beyond. Like those, those are not complicated like theological arguments that take a, you know, a, PhD, six, a PhD to understand. In, and so I think it's mostly a question of culture rather than about faith. Because I think our faith is actually one that really resonates and connects across the spectrum. It's what are the, what are the institutions that we've created? How do they reflect that faith back? Mm, beautiful. So this one, I think, follows well on that because uh, it's sort of like, how do we sort of continue that, develop that culture together? Other than flower and water ceremonies, what are other uniquely UU traditions that I can introduce to my kids? 
Um, well, lighting the chalice is the one that comes the easiest to mind. Um, and that's something that I've found appeals to all ages. Um, it came up in the board retreat yesterday, actually, of kind of the, or Friday night, of the etiquette around lighting the chalice. They're like, is it the practice to say the words and then light the chalice, or do you light the chalice and then say the words? Or do you do it at the same time? And Or do you do it somehow at the same time, and then what do you do with your hand? Anyway, there the answer is there is no answer. <laughs> there is no, we don't have that. That kind of thing is like follow your heart. But um, the only real rule that I know about lighting the chalice is that you should not use it as a garbage receptacle. What In do other you, words, don't put your old you, matches in it when you're done. Other than that, it's intended as a, uh, a ritual of acknowledging our living faith, the way that we are all co-creating uh, the sense of, of where we're called to next and our sense of what Unitarian Universalism is. That's why it's a flame, so. I, I think part of the beauty of Unitarian Universalism and the challenge of Unitarian Universalism is that often when we think about spiritual practices, um, we have such a broad canon of them that, you know, we think about spiritual practices as anything done with intentionality, regularity, and depth. And so that means that your daily walk with your dog could be your spiritual practice, right? You know, that means, you know, washing the dishes can be your spiritual practice if you bring intentionality and regularity and it invites some depth, some connection within you. But we often don't label these things as part of our religious practice. They might be just things that we do. And of course, when we label them, often it allows us to go deeper in them. But we need to like actually start to say, not only is this a spiritual practice, but this is connected to my faith, which is Unitarian Universalism. And so the justice work that we do, the relationships we build in our neighborhoods, the practices that we have internally, all of these things that are going to be unique to your life and your situations, part of the work is to think about how do these actually connect to my faith and give them that sense of it um, because it's there. You don't need to pick up necessarily these traditions um, that have evolved over centuries or decades, depending on which one you're talking about. Um, okay. I realize we didn't set a timer. We didn't. When um, are we done? You want to do one more? Okay, one more. And then we'll take a break and then you'll resort. Why don't we dance here? It's a sin. <laughs> Obviously. We dance sometimes. Right. We, I feel like we danced last week, didn't we? I mean, when there the was a moment where do. some people danced. Right. I mean, I think that part of the question maybe they're coming to is, um, I think it goes to that culture question, right? So we have primarily been set within the white Protestant tradition. And in the white Protestant tradition, church is the place that you come to sit stoically and receive the word of God, to make good appearances socially so that other people think you're doing okay, right? <laughs> and to kind of hear what's going on in the lives of the, ch uh, of the, of the people, right? And so that expression of faith is very rigid, it is very bound, um, and we could go into like a lot of the ways that white culture and white supremacy culture kind of constricts that, um, but that's where we've come from. And so part of the question of like, why don't we dance is because we are the, and, or because our ancestors banned dancing. It's true. And we are slowly trying to work our way out of it to feel like our bodies are actually a source of uh, 
in, uh, insight into the world, joy, and that pleasure isn't something that we need to justify, and that movement is something that actually we could trust, that feeling, that impulse to dance, to move in worship in, in our place is something we can trust and isn't like some temptation or something that's going to get us shunned by other people within our spaces. I mean, a bunch of you probably feel that, right? You're like, I want to sway in this song, but like, do we sway here? <laughs> what would my neighbor think? We call what we do worship. What exactly are we worshiping? Great. So the, the, the Germanic origin of the word worship <laughs> is to ascribe worth. And so the idea of worship is coming together to ascribe, which is a communal process, to say this is worthy of our time and attention. And so worship is that time that we say, you know what, it's important for us to gather as a community. It's important for us to have time of silence and contemplation. It's important for us to be challenged and grow in thought. Um, and spurred on and to remember gratitude and generosity, that these are things that are worthy of our time and attention, especially when our culture pulls us in so many different directions. And so we're not worshiping something. Worship is the practice in which we are reminded about what is worthy. Mm. How do we stay positive about our country during these turbulent times? I mean, I, I guess that's assuming that staying positive is important. Um, I would reframe to say, how do we stay engaged and committed? Mm. Um, because I think it's okay if you're not feeling positive. Um, one of my favorite messages in the Barbie movie, for example, <laughs> is the moment when they say, there's no hope, but we got to try anyway. So I think... Um, I, I think finding where the inner sense of like what you believe in and what's worth continuing to uh, work towards something, even if it isn't, you, you don't see its possibility in your lifetime, is that, that's how I frame pretty much any question, including democracy. Why don't more members volunteer to serve? Why is it only a small cadre that serves? You got, it. You, got it. you got it. I mean, I feel like they should turn to their neighbors and Ask answer that, right? I mean, I think in any organization, there is a sense that there's a small group of people that disproportionately hold for everyone else. And, I, and in, within churches, part of that, I think, is a bit natural because there are some of us who are in life stages and realities in which we can hold doing the work of serving for those who just can't. I mean, there are people who show up here every Sunday that they literally can't add anything to their plate, to their mental load, to their lives. Um, and so part of that is what it means to be in community, which is that we have to hold it all together. I think the other flip side of that, though, is that I think often people feel like they um, are not ready, not authorized, not welcomed. Um, not trained or prepared or not sure how to do it. And those sort of questions and barriers prevent people from putting up their hand and saying, you know, actually, I think I might be able to bring something to the table. And so part of our collective work together is to, to notice that and to invite each other in before we feel ready. Because I think most of us, if we think about the most important things in our lives that we've done, we did it before we felt ready to do it. Perfect segue. At what moment in your life did you know you wanted to become a minister? Still working it out. 
Just kidding. So uh, I grew up non-religious. Um, and when I was probably in third or fourth grade, we were at my friend's cabin, and I spent a lot of time elaborately creating a survivor game show that I invited my parents and all the adults who were there into. I literally forced them into challenges to vote each other off, <laughs> and we crowned a winner. Um, and that was an expression of something that was really um, core to me for a very long time, which is I, I felt called to create experiences for other people to have that allowed them to encounter something that they couldn't do alone. And it was only when I started going to church and I realized the depth and the breadth of what religious community offers that that inner sense that was there since childhood connected with something else, um, a kind of a, a vocational call. And pretty much ever since I stepped foot in a church, I had a sense that this was my, my life's work. <laughs> I want to I do a follow-up, but I'll try to stick to the process we've agreed on. Um, we'll c cover that in the podcast. Um, well, I, 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 it was my third service in, the, um, in a Unitarian Universalist church, which was the first church where I had a, a female minister. So I grew up Catholic. Um, and I saw the female minister there. I was like 23, I think. Um, I saw the minister there, I looked to my partner, and I said, I'm going to do that someday. And she said, yeah, I can see that. And in my mind, I thought, you need to be, I don't know, I, th I said, like, my fifth career or something. Um, I just, I had a thought, like, you, I don't know, had this crazy idea that you should, if to be a minister, you should know something. <laughs> um, and so I thought I should just go live some life and then come back around. And it turns out that much life was like by the time I was 30. But it definitely still was, I, I knew pretty clearly. And um, I, the other moment that happened that helped me know what, that it was time is I was speaking in my Unitarian Universalist church. Um, and just offering a chalice lighting, like you know a lot of us, a lot, a lot of you have done, you've heard other members. Somebody afterwards came up to me, just a church member, and said, how far along are you in seminary? And I said, I'm just a, I'm just a member here. Um, but it sparked back to that original moment. So I just, I say that because it's a good reminder to all of us that actually ministers experience a call inside ourselves, but in our tradition, we're called by one another as well. So just know that we might have a realization or you might have a realization, but seeing it in somebody else and naming it is just as worthy and important of a realization. What authors or books do you find yourself turning to again and again as you wrestle with your faith or your theology? I, I can go. I mean, I feel like my, my answers, I feel like they're not that interesting, but um, James Luther Adams, I, who was a Unitarian ethicist and theologian, I can never not learn something when I go back to his work. Um, and so I read it a lot. It's very dense. Um, he was very interested in um, uh, fighting fascism and how our faith is or is not enough to motivate us to 
to work against fascism. So I, that is an important one for me. Um, and then I am especially, um, my, I have a strong heart for Rebecca Parker, who is a, a Unitarian Universalist theologian. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty, I, I return a lot to Adrienne Marie Brown and more contemporary, who is a, uh, justice activist, I don't know, she has all kinds of other words around her, but poet, magic maker, who talks about emergent theory. I don't feel like I have a specific canon of books or authors that I return to over and over again in that way. I feel like I just collect things into my brain <laughs> and they kind of stick. It's true. It's annoying to some other people. Not um, annoying, it's but great. It's just, I feel like living life in ways that are challenging to me um, and trying to, you know, Emerson said the work of preaching is putting life through the fire of thought. I feel like that just process of an ongoing experience is what I try to return to again and again. So we just have about a minute and a half left, so this is a short okay. question, okay. hopefully. Uh, the question is, when you think about our congregation and the culture we're creating together, what's something that just inspires awe and an appreciation within you? Everything. I mean, that's it, honestly. Um, I, my very first meeting with this congregation was in May of 2012, or April of 2012. And it was a group of uh, 13 or so people, 15, um, who were interviewing me. And I left that conversation filled with a sense of joy and um, just, just happiness. And that's, it's such an, it, like people talk about, there's so much about the world that is filled with angst and struggle. And I left that just feeling the sense of, I just hope they say yes, because I think we'd have such a good time. And um, it, that has been consistently my experience of feeling, I can't believe how committed this congregation is to that, that um, value we name of joyful resilience. It is not a looking away from life's difficulties, but of continuing to, you know, fill out the Mad Libs that way, <laughs> you know, or just not being, not, not taking itself too seriously, but that doesn't mean not taking the work seriously. I, I cannot believe how, how joyous this place is and how beautiful that, how real that is. It's, it, it really keeps me going, and it is the thing that I, I just still think, God, we just have such a good time, and we get to do such good work together. It, it, I know it's simple, but it's, it's really true. I, and at, at the same part, we somehow do that while also facing some really challenging things together. Like there were moments early on, especially when we were disclosing around sexual misconduct, that I was like, wow, if this, if this community, like this could break our community if we were not able to move through this with a really complex understanding of truth, a really complex understanding of um, what, what we mean to each other, of what it means to be accountable, what it means to um, heal and, and reconcile, um, but also to tell the truth. Um, in the face of a lot of pressures to not tell the truth, I remember thinking, wow, like I, I've never seen a congregation uh, navigate that well. 
because usually um, those forces that say, hey, let's not talk about this, or the congregation fractures. Um, but in this church, there was this like collective will that said, you know what? We're going to talk about this. We're going to stay connected to each other, even when we disagree. We're going to care for each other. Um, and I feel like that DNA has allowed us to take stands, to become a sanctuary congregation, to be committed in our community in so many different ways. To build that. To build this. The big right? All of that there. has been this like core commitment to do hard things together, which is just really unique. And it, I, I'm constantly you know, with colleagues being like, yeah, I, that sounds really great or that sounds really awful what's going on in your church and just being like, I'm so grateful to be here. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to the Deeper Podcasts. We want to hear if you think we totally messed up one of those questions or if you have an answer to one of them because we are a community that... Uh, values all the perspectives and you can send us like a voice memo so you could record yourself and send it to us and who knows it might end up on a podcast you can always email us at deeperpod at foothillsuu.org thank you for listening especially to a long episode like this let us know how things are what you, if you like these sorts of longer form experiences um, I love the opportunity to hear the questions that are on people's hearts because that really um helps me connect into kind of the pulse of our community and where their questions and my questions intersect. So thank you for that experience and thank you for listening until next time. <laughs>